Chapter 12 of Geoffrey by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 12 The slow weeks passed. Fog gave way to long rain, and rain to a touch of frost and timid spring sunshine. And it was only then that Doria emerged from the valley of the shadow. The first time they allowed me to visit her, I stood for a fraction of a second almost in search of a human occupant of the room. Lying in the bed she looked such a pitiful scrap, all hair and eyes. She smiled and held droopingly out to me the most fragile thing in hands I have ever seen. "'I'm going to live, after all, they tell me.' "'Of course you are,' I answered cheerily. "'It's the season for things to find they're going to live. The crocuses and aconite have already made the discovery.' She sighed. The garden at Northlands will soon be beautiful. I love it in the spring. The dancing daffodils. We'll have you down to dance with them, said I. It's strange that I want to live, she remarked after a pause. At first I longed to die. That was why my recovery was so slow. But now, odd, isn't it? Life means infinitely more than one's own sorrow, no matter how great it is, I replied gently. Yes, she assented. I can live now for Adrian's memory. I suppose most people in Doria's position would have said much the same. In ordinary circumstances one approves the pious aspiration. If it gives them temporary comfort, why in heaven's name shouldn't they have it? But in Doria's case its utterance gave me a kind of stab in the heart. By way of reply I patted her poor little wrist sympathetically. "'When will the book be out?' she asked. "'I'm afraid I don't quite know,' said I. "'I suppose they're busy printing it.' Uh, "'Jaffrey's in charge,' I replied, according to instructions. "'He must get it out at once. The early spring's the best time. It won't do to wait too long. Will you tell him?' "'I will,' said I. "'I don't think I've ever loathed a thing so wholly as that confounded ghost of a book.' Naturally it was the dominant thought in the poor child's mind— she had already worried Barbara about it. It formed the subject of nearly her first question to me. I foresaw trouble. I could not plead bland ignorance for ever, though for the present I did not know the nature of Geoffrey's scheme. Anyhow, I redeemed my promise and gave him Doria's message. He received it with a grumpy nod and said nothing. He had become somewhat grumpy of late, even when I did not broach the disastrous topic, and made excuses for not coming down to Northlands. I attributed the unusual moroseness to London in vile weather. At the best of times, Geoffrey grew impatient of the narrow conditions of town. Yet there he was, week after week, staying in a pokey set of furnished chambers in Victoria Street, and doing nothing in particular, as far as I could make out, save riding on the tops of motor-omnibuses without an overcoat. After his silent acknowledgment of the message, he stuffed his pipe thoughtfully. We were in the smoking-room of a club, not the Athenaeum, to which we both belonged. And then he roared out, "'Do you think she could bear the sight of me?' "'What do you mean?' I asked. "'Well,' he grinned a little, "'I'm not exactly a kind of sick-room flower.' "'I think you ought to see her. You're as much trustee and executor as I am. You might also save Barbara and myself from nerve-wracking questions.' "'All right, I'll go,' he said. The interview was only fairly successful.' He told her that the book would be published as soon as possible. 
"'When will that be?' she asked. Geoffrey seemed to be as vague as myself. "'Is it in the printer's hands?' "'Not yet.' "'Why?' He explained that Adrian had practically finished the novel, but here and there it needed the little trimming and tacking together, which Adrian would have done had he lived to revise the manuscript. He himself was engaged on this necessary, though purely mechanical, task of revision. "'I quite agree,' said Doria to this, "'that Adrian's work could not be given out in an imperfect state. "'But there can't be very much to do, "'so why are you taking all this time over it?' "'I'm afraid I've been rather busy,' said he. "'Which tactless, though I admit unavoidable, reply "'did not greatly please Doria. "'When she saw Barbara, to whom she related this conversation, "'she complained of Geoffrey's unfeeling conduct. "'He had no right to hang up Adrian's great novel "'on account of his own wretched business.' Letting the latter slide would have been a tribute to his dead friend. Barbara did her best to soothe her, but we agreed that Geoffrey had made a bad start. A short while afterwards I was in the club again, and there I came across Arbuthnot, the manager of Geoffrey's newspaper, whom I had known for some years, originally, I think, through Geoffrey. I accepted the offer of a seat at his luncheon-table, and, as men will, we began to discuss our common friend. "'I wonder what has come over him lately,' said he, after a while. "'Have you noticed any difference?' I was startled. "'Yes, can't make him out. "'Poor Agent Bordero's death was a great shock.' Oh, "'Quite so,' Arbuthnot assented. "'But Jaff Jane, when he gets a shock, "'is the sort of fellow that goes into the middle of the wilderness and roars. "'Yet here he is in London and won't be persuaded to leave it.' "'What do you mean?' I asked. "'We wanted to send him out to Persia, and he refused to go. "'We had to send young Brodie instead. "'We won't do the work half as well.' "'All this is news to me,' said I. "'And it was a first-class business with armed escorts, caravans, wild tribes, "'a matter of great danger and subtle politics, railways, finance, "'the whole hang of the international situation and internal conditions. "'A big scoop. "'Everything that usually is butter and honey to Jaff Chain. "'An ideal job for him in every way.' But no, he was fed up with scallywagging all over the place. He wanted a season in town. At the idea of Jaffrey yearning to play the society butterfly, I could not help laughing. Jaffrey lounging down Bond Street in immaculate vesture. Jaffrey sipping tea at afternoon at Holmes. Jaffrey dancing till three o'clock in the morning. It was all very comic, and Arbuthnot, seeing the matter in that aspect, laughed too but on the other hand it was all very incomprehensible. To Geoffrey a job was a sacred affair, the meaning of his existence. He was a Mercury who took himself seriously. The more remote and rough and uncomfortable and dangerous his mission, the more he liked it. He never spared himself. He had been a model special correspondent, ever ready at a moment's notice to set off to the ends of the earth. And now, all of a sudden, Behold him declining a task after his own heart, and, as I gather from Arbuthnot, of the greatest political significance, and thereby endangering his peculiar and honourable position on the paper. If it had been any other man alive who had turned us down like that, said Arbuthnot, we would have chucked him altogether. In fact, we didn't tell him that we wouldn't. It was very mysterious, all the more so because Geoffrey had never been a man of mystery like Adrian. I went away, wondering. If it occurred to me at the time that I was destined to play Boswell to Geoffrey's Johnson, 
perhaps I might have gone straight to him and demanded a solution of my difficulties. As it was, in my unawakened condition, I did nothing of the kind. I spent an hour or two looking up something in the British Museum, stopped at the bootmakers to give an order concerning Susan's riding boots, vide diary, and drove home to dinner to a comfortable chat with Barbara, during which I gave her an account of the day's doings, and eventually to the peaceful slumber of the contented and inoffensive man. A fortnight or so passed before I saw Geoffrey again. Happening to be in Westminster in the forenoon, I had come up to town on business, I mounted to his cheerless eyrie in Victoria Street and rang the bell. A dingy servitor in a dress-suit on transient duty admitted me, and I found Geoffrey collarless and minus jacket and waistcoat, smoking a pipe in front of the fire. It wasn't even a good coal-fire. Some austere former tenant had installed an electric radiator in the once comfort-giving grate. But Geoffrey did not seem to mind. The remains of breakfast were on the table, which the dingy servitor began to clear. Geoffrey rose from the depths of his easy-chair like an agile mammoth. "'Hello! Hello! Hello!' His usual greeting. We shook hands and commended the weather. When the alien attendant had departed, he began to curse London. It was a hole for sick dogs, not for sound men. He loathed its abominable suffocation. "'Then why the deuce do you stay in it?' He shrugged his shoulders. "'I can't do anything else.' This gave me an opening to satisfy my curiosity. "'I understood you could have gone to Persia.' He frowned and tugged his ragged beard. "'How did you know that?' "'Arbuthnot,' I began. "'Arbuthnot?' he boomed angrily. "'What the blazes does he mean by telling you about my affairs? I'll punch his damned head!' "'Don't,' said I. "'Your hands are so big, and he's so small, you might hurt him.' "'I'd like to hurt him. Why can't he keep his infernal tongue quiet?' He proceeded to wither up the soul of Arbuthnot with awful anathema. Then, in his infantile way, he shouted, "'I didn't want any of you to know anything about it.' "'Why?' I asked. "'Because I didn't.' "'But I suppose you wanted to go to Persia?' He paused in his lumbering walk about the little room, and, collecting a litter of books and papers and a hat or two and a legging from a sofa, pitched it into a corner. "'Here, sit down.' I'd been warming my back at the fire hitherto, and surveying the half-formal, half-unkempt sitting-room. It was by no means the comfortable home from Harrod's stores that Barbara had prescribed— and he had not attempted to furnish it in slap-up style with the heads of game and skins and modern weapons which lay in the London repository. It was the impersonal abode of the male bird of passage. "'Sit down,' said he, "'and have a drink.' I declined, alleging the fact that a philosophically-minded country gentleman of domestic habits does not require alcohol at half-past eleven in the morning, except under the stress of peculiar circumstances. "'I'm going to have one anyway.' He disappeared, and presently re-entered with a battered two-handled silver court pot bearing defaced arms and inscription, a rowing trophy of Cambridge days, which he always carried about with him on no matter what lightly equipped expedition. It is always a matter of regret to me that Geoffrey, as I have mentioned before, missed his seat in the Cambridge boat. But when one despoils a proctor of his square cap, and it is found the central feature of one's rooms beneath a glass shade, such as used to protect wax flowers from the dust. What can one expect from the priggish judgment of university authority? He re-entered with this vessel full of beer. He nodded, drank a huge draught, 
and wiped his moustache with his hand. "'But have some. I've got a cask in the bedroom.' "'Good God!' said I, aghast. "'What else do you keep there? A side of bacon and a Limburger cheese and Bombay duck?' Now just imagine a civilised gentleman keeping a cask of beer in his bedroom. Geoffrey laughed, and took another swig, and called me a long, lean, puny-gutted insect, which was not polite, but I was glad to hear the deep ho-ho-ho that followed his vituperation. "'All the same,' said I, reclining on the cleared sofa and lighting a cigarette, "'I should like to know why you missed one of the chances of your life in not going out to Persia.' He stood for a moment or two, scrabbling in whisker and beard, and, turning over in his mind, I suppose, that Barbara was my wife, and Susan my child, and I myself an inconsiderable humour not evilly disposed towards him, he apparently decided not to annihilate me. "'It was hell, Hilary, old chap, to chuck the Persian proposition,' said he, his hands in his trouser-pockets, looking out of the window the infinitely reaching landscape of the chimney-pots of South London their grey smoke making London's unique pearly haze below the crisp blue of the March sky. "'Just hell!' he muttered in his bass whisper, and, craning round my neck, I could, with the tail of my eye, catch his gaze, which was very wistful, and seemed directed not at the opalescent mystery of the London air, but at the clear vividness of the Persian desert. Away and away, beyond the shimmering sand, gleamed the frosted town with white walls, white domes, white minarets, against the horizon-band of topaz and amethystine vapours. And in his nostrils was the immemorable smell of the east, and in his ears the startling jingle of the harness and the pad of the camels, and the guttural cries of the drivers, and in his heart the certainty of plucking out the secret from the soul of this strange land. At last he swung round, and, throwing himself into the armchair, inquired politely after the health of Barbara and Susan. As far as the Persian journey was concerned, the palaver was ended. He did not intend to give me his reasons for staying in England, and I could not demand them more insistently. At any rate, I had discovered the cause of his grumpiness. What creature of Geoffrey's temperament could be contented with a soft bed in the centre of civilization, when he had the chance of sleeping in verminous caravanseries with a saddle for pillow? In spite of his amazing predilections, Geoffrey was very human. He would not make a great sacrifice without hesitation, but the consequences of the sacrifice would cause him to go about like a bear with a sore head. And the cause of the sacrifice? Obviously, Doria. Once, having been admitted to her bedside, he went there every day. Flowers and fruit he had sent from the very beginning in absurd profusion— a grape for Doria failed in adequacy unless it was the size of a pumpkin. Now he brought the offerings personally in embarrassing bulk. One offering was a gramophone which nearly drove her mad. Even in its present state of development it offends the sensitive ear. But in its early days it was an instrument of torturing cacophony. And Jaffrey, thinking the Brayton strains music of the spheres, would turn on the hideous engine when he came to see her, and would grin and roar, and expect her to show evidence of ravished senses. She did her best, poor child, out of politeness, and recognition of his desire to alleviate her lot. But I don't think the gramophone conveyed to her heart the poor dear fellow's unspoken message. But gently criticising the banality of the tunes, the thing played, and sending him forth in quest of records of recondite and 
unrecorded music, she succeeded in mitigating the terror. To the present moment, however, I don't think Jaffrey has realised that she had a higher aesthetic equipment than the hip-sized fox terrier in the advertisement. Jaffrey also bought her puzzles and funny penny-pavement toys and gallons of eau de cologne, which came in useful, and expensive scent, which she abominated, and stacks of new novels, and a fearsome machine of wood and brass and universal joints, by means of which an invalid could read and breakfast and write and shave all at the same time. The only thing he did not give her, the thing she craved more than all, was a fresh-bound copy of Adrian's book. Obviously, as I have remarked, it was Doria that kept him out of Persia. But I could not help thinking that this same Persian journey might have afforded a solution of the whole difficulty. Dispatched suddenly to that vaguely known country, he could have taken the mythical manuscript to revise on the journey. The convoy could have been attacked by a horde of Kurds, or such like desperadoes. All could have been slain, save a fortunate handful, and the manuscript could have been looted as an important political document and carried off into eternity. Dore would have hated Jaffrey for ever after, but his chivalrous aim would have been accomplished. Adrian's honour would have been safe. But this simple way out never occurred to him. Apparently he thought it wiser to sacrifice his career and remain in London so as to buoy Doria up with false hope, all the time praying God to burn down St. Quentin's mansions, where he lived, an agent's portmanteau of rubbish and himself altogether. Suddenly, as soon as Doria could be moved, Mr. Johnnycroft stepped in and carried her to the south of France. Barbara and Geoffrey and myself saw her off by the afternoon train at Charing Cross. She was to rest in Paris for the night and the next day, and proceed the following night to Nice. She looked the frailest thing under the sun. Her face was startling ivory beneath her widow's headgear. She had scarcely strength to lift her head. Mr. Jornicroft had made luxurious arrangements for her comfort. An ambulance carriage from St. John's Wood, a special invalid compartment in the train. But at the station, as at Doria's wedding, Geoffrey took command. It was his great arms that lifted her featherweight with extraordinary sureness and gentleness from the carriage, carried her across the platform, and deposited her tenderly on the couch in the compartment. Touched by his solicitude, she thanked him with much graciousness. He bent over her. We were standing at the door and could not choose but hear. "'Don't you remember what I said the first day I met you?' "'Yes.' "'It stands, my dear, and more than that.' He paused for a second and took her thin hand. "'Don't you worry about that book. You get well and strong.' He kissed her hand and spoiled the gallantry by squeezing her shoulder, half her little body it seemed to be, and emerging from the compartment joined us on the platform. He put a great finger on the arm of the rubicund, thick-set, black-moustached Jornicroft. "'I think I'll come with you as far as Paris,' said he. "'I'll get into a smoker somewhere or the other.' "'But, my dear sir,' exclaimed Mr. Jornicroft, in some amazement, "'it's awfully kind, but why should you?' "'Ah, uh, Mrs. Baldero has got to be carried. I didn't realise it. She can't put her feet to the ground. Someone has got to lift her at every stage of the journey. I'm not going to let any damned clumsy fellow handle her. I'll see her into the Nice train tomorrow night. Perhaps I'll go on to Nice with you and fix her up in the hotel. As a matter of fact, I will. I shan't worry you. You, you won't see me, except at the right time. Don't be afraid.' 
Mr. Jornicroft, most methodical of Britons, gasped. So I must confess, dear Barbara, and I. When Geoffrey met us at the station, he had no more intention of escorting Doria to Nice than we had ourselves. I, I can't permit it. It's too kind. There's, there's no necessity. We'll get on all right, spluttered Mr. Jornicroft. You won't. She has got to be carried. You're not going to take any risks. Oh, my dear fellow, it's absurd. We haven't any luggage. Luggage? He looked at Mr. Jornicroft as if he had suggested the impossibility of going abroad without a motor veil or the Encyclopaedia Britannica. What the blazes has luggage got to do with it? His roar could be heard above the din of the hurrying station. I don't want luggage. The humour of the proposition appealed to him so mightily that he went off into one of his reverberating explosions of mirth. <laughs> then recovering, don't you worry about that. But have you enough on you? It's an expensive journey. Of course I should be most happy. Jaffrey stepped back and scanned the length of the platform, and beckoned to an official who came hurrying towards him. It was the station-master. "'Have you ever seen me before, Mr. Winter?' The official laughed. "'Put ye off Mr. Chine. "'Do you think I could get from here to Nice without buying a ticket now?' "'Why, of course. Our agent at Boulogne would arrange it if I sent him a wire.' "'Right,' said Geoffrey. "'Please do so, Mr. Winter. "'I am crossing now and going to Nice by the Côte d'Azur Express tomorrow night.' See after a seat for me, will you? I'll reserve a compartment, if possible, Mr. Chine. The station-master raised his hat and departed. Jaffrey, his hands stuffed deep in his pockets, beamed upon us like a mountainous child. We were all impressed by his lordly command of the railway systems of Europe. It was a question of credit, of course, but neither Mr. Jornicroft, solid man that he was, nor myself, could have undertaken that journey without a few loose shillings in his possession. For the first time since Adrian's death, I saw Jaffrey really enjoying himself. And that is how Jaffrey, without money or luggage or even an overcoat, travelled from London to Nice, for no other purpose to save Doria's sacred little body from being profaned by the touch of ruder hands. Having carried her at every stage, beginning with this transfer from train to steamer at Folkestone, and ending with a triumphant march up the stairs to the third floor of the Simiers Hotel, he took the first train back straight through to London. He returned, the same gold grinning giant, without a shadow of grumpiness on his jolly face. End of chapter 12